Well, I'm going to just say this, this is a great day, isn't it? Yeah, repeat it after me, okay? This is a great day. God's doing great things in me and through me today. God's doing great things. And then this last one with, with verve. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. Okay, that was not with verve. Who knows what verve means, okay? Okay, it means, it means with excitement, with joy, with intensity. Okay, so let's do the last one. The little bit, let's raise it up just a little bit. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. All right, that's right. Yeah. I believe that. I believe that's why God shows up like this in worship, because he wants us each to have victory and breakthrough in our lives. And the simple truth is, we need to have victory and breakthrough every day of our lives, and we will, we will need that until the very last breath we take, because we need to keep growing closer and closer to Jesus throughout our entire lifetimes. And um, boy, if you were here last week, you heard Wilson's message. He spoke on a very difficult passage regarding divorce and remarriage and what Jesus said about that. And it was just a fantastic message given in historical and, and uh, the, the context of the actual passage itself, very affirming, very loving, uh, very freeing, I think, for, for everyone. And I would encourage you, if you didn't get to hear that message yet, go back and listen to it, okay? And I want to say this as well. Anybody who has uh, gone through divorce in the past, I encourage you to take divorce care. Uh, it's a ministry here that helps people to deal with the issues from the past. And you might think, well, my divorce was 10 years ago, I've dealt with that. Well, a lot of times, and this might not be the case with you, but a lot of times when I say that, what I mean is I've taken that pain and those emotions and I put them in a box and I've wrapped it real tight with duct tape and put them in a closet. But they're still in the closet and they still have an impact. And we need, we need healing. And, and I mean, we all do that. We all need healing. But in this area of divorce, divorce care is specifically designed to give people healing for the pain that they went through in divorce and prepare them for the future. So today, we're going to talk about uh, this incredible passage of Scripture where Jesus focuses on the simplicity of godly character just a simplicity of truthfulness, being known as a truthful, authentic, honest person, and the tremendous impact that can have in our lives and in the lives of others around us. Now, we all want to be known as truthful, don't we? Nobody likes to be called a liar. Even liars don't like to be called liars. I mean, I've seen this where, you know, I know the guy's lying and you lovingly call it out and they're irate. But we all want to be known as truthful. And as I prepared this message, it reminded me of a time back in the early 80s, uh, literally 40 years ago, I was a brand new pastor, and I was called upon to testify in a criminal case, and this family had started coming to our church, it only come for maybe four or five weeks, and something came out in the husband's life that, was, that he had done that was wrong and illegal, and, and the police got involved, and he was being prosecuted for this. And they asked me to come as a, as a character witness. And I said, well, I, I don't even hardly know, know you, but you know, I'll, I'll go just out of love for, love for this family. And um, the defense attorney asked me a question. 
He said, what was the state of their marriage at X point in time? And now at this point in time, I'm barely more than a country boy. I grew up in a small town. I'm not used to sitting in courtrooms with lawyers and district attorneys and people potentially going to prison and stuff like that. I didn't use the best wording. I said, it was uncertain. And the district attorney at the moment was shuffling some papers and he looked up and he said, objection, your honor. How could it possibly be that this minister doesn't know the state of the condition of their marriage at that moment in time? And I realized he had misheard me. He wasn't listening and he thought I said, I'm uncertain. And again, I wish I had used different words, but the judge shot him down. The judge said, objection overruled, sit down. If that's what the reverend says, then that's the way it is. <laughs> and then he said, move on. And I'm sitting there like a deer in the headlights, not knowing what to do. All I know is my integrity was challenged publicly. And it seemed like the district attorney was really mad at me. And if you ever had a district attorney mad at you, that's an uncomfortable thing. But uh, I really, I, I didn't have any chance to, to rectify that. I didn't have the opportunity to say, no, you didn't hear me right. You know, here's what I meant, here's what I said. I wish I had used different words that would have been wouldn't have been, been misunderstood. But the whole idea of that is that we want to be people of integrity and uh, honest people. And boy, we don't want to have that challenge. We want to be known as people of integrity. This passage, that's what this passage is all about. It's Matthew 5, 33 to 37. So would you stand with me and read it aloud with me this time, okay? Call, kind of like follow my pace. So here we go, verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that to the people, let's start again, sorry. <laughs> you know, I've memorized a lot of these passages in different translations. And I started it, and it just comes out in the New King James, or sometimes the Old King James, or whatever. So let's just start again. Again, you've heard it said, no, <laughs> Would someone else like to do this, please? Yeah. All right, I'm just gonna read it this time, okay? All right, one more time. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay, have a seat. And Father, uh, we just open our hearts to receive from you, uh, Lord Jesus, what you intended through this. We ask you to minister to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, you're the teacher, so we just welcome you to teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So he talks about oaths or vows. And an oath or a vow is a promise that is made with an accompanying statement calling upon God, some sacred place or some sacred image, or calling down judgment on oneself if you don't fulfill your word. 
And so it's saying, I promise to do this, and if I fail in my promise, may my hair fall out and my teeth all fall out or whatever. Or I promise to do this in the name of the Lord God. And this, this whole idea of oath-taking developed among the Jews. It's kind of rooted in the Ten Commandments where Jesus started, where, where, where the Bible, uh, G- Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament. And here in Exodus 20 and verse 7, in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Another way to translate that is the Lord will not count him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, to understand what it means to take God's name in vain, we need to understand that name in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but in the New as well, refers to more than simply an identifier. It, is, it refers to the character of the person. And, and so Abram means father. And when he and Sarah had no children, his name was still father as a prophetic statement that they were going to have children. And then God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a nation. And, and of course, he became the father of the Jewish nation. You see um, names like Peter in the New Testament means rock. And even Jesus means Messiah. It means Savior. And so God's name means something. And to take it in vain means to to make it empty or futile or or useless. And so one way of uh, using God's name in vain is to misrepresent the greatness of who he is and how awesome he is. I mean, have you ever seen on any type of social media the letters OMG? Oh my God. Probably in response to someone hearing that their friend ate a banana split. You know, OMG, I want a banana split too. That's taking God's name in vain. (laughs) It, It really is. It, 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 another thing I've heard over the years is, I'm going to say it in a way, hopefully that doesn't sound like I'm using it as a cuss, but for Christ's sake. That's a great statement. For Christ's sake, I love God. You know, for Christ's sake, I want to go out and reach the lost. But when it is used for Christ's sake, why the H did you do that? That's taking this lofty, awesome name of our Savior, and it's just bringing it right down into the muck. That's taking his name in vain. And so that's, that's one way that we take his name in vain. Other ways we take his name in vain is like to, be, to claim to be his follower. Like maybe I'm the most vocal Christian where I work, but I'm always late for work and I do a bad job. Okay, I'm flying the flag Jesus all the time, and people look at my life and they say, boy, if that's what Jesus is, don't want a whole lot of that. That's misrepresenting who he is and using his name in vain. And, and probably the most insidious way is through direct deceit, where someone will name the name of Christ, name the name of God with an attempt to, uh, to close a business deal. Now, you should trust me because I'm a Christian, uh, or you should come to me because I'm a follower of Christ, uh, or, or to win an election, or, or anything like that. And so it's possible to 
take his name in all of these ways. And this is related to the whole concept of oath-taking because what Jesus was saying there was that when you take an oath in God's, to God, make an oath to God and you don't fulfill it, you're taking his name in vain. And so there were oaths that were made to God. And in Deuteronomy 23, 21, it says this, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly require it of you, and it will be a sin for you. So he's saying, when you make a vow, fulfill it. Now, the very next verse says, vows are not compulsory. They're voluntary. In fact, God doesn't even, in the next verse, it says, if you make a vow, or if you don't make a vow, is irrelevant. doesn't make any difference. But if you do make a vow, you better keep it. So vows were totally voluntary. You didn't have to make it, but if you do, you better keep it. It would be kind of like this. Let's say my wife asks me, what time will you be home tonight? I could say, you know, honey, I don't know. We got a lot on the agenda. I have this meeting. Um, you know, I'll let you know when I can. Okay, no vow there. But what if I say, oh, I'll be home by 8.30, and then I'm not home till 9.30. See, what I, the difference there is I didn't make a vow. I didn't have to, but I did anyway, but I didn't fulfill it, even though it's, it's something that's beyond my capability of fulfilling because the meeting ran long, I, you know, I made a vow. And so he's saying here, if you make a vow to God, you better fulfill it. Now, Jacob illustrates this, that when Jacob left his home and was traveling to, the, to live with his uncle uh, in, in Mesopotamia, he stopped one night at a place called Bethel, and he had a dream, and in that dream, he saw a stairway to heaven and angels ascending and descending. Next morning, Jacob gets up and he builds a pillar of stones, you know, a pile of stones, and he anoints it with oil, and he says, if the God of that dream last night leads me on my journey and brings me home safely, then he will be my God. And specifically, it went like this. He said, if God will be with me and keep me on this journey and return me to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Now, 15, 16, 17 years later, God speaks to Jacob in the land of Mesopotamia, and here's what he says. He says, I am the God of Bethel, right where Jacob saw had the dream, where he built the pillar where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. See, Jacob made a promise to God, if you do this, I'll do that. And then he says, now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. And so the, the vow, Jacob made a vow to God, God remembered it, and God comes along and he says, okay, it's time to fulfill that vow. And so if you make a vow to God, this is saying, you know, we need to fulfill it. But Vows could be made not only to God, but to other people. And this is what Jesus jumps to very quickly. He starts off with the, with the statement about, if you make a vow to God, you better fulfill it. But then he moves very quickly to another whole category of vows, which I'm going to explain to you when we read this in a moment. And that other whole category is vows made to other human beings, other people, business deals, and things like that. And when we make vows to others... In Leviticus 19, 11 through 13, it talks about this. And I, and I, I gave some of the context. It's, it's the center verse that we want to get to. But it starts off by saying, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. 
And then, then it talks about vows. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of God, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And then he goes on to say, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired worker are not to remain with you all night until morning. And it, he's talking here about fairness and, and, and honesty and right dealings with other people. And that last phrase about, about the worker's wages, you know, we live in a week-to-week or a month-to-month budgetary type cycle. They, the laborers in that day lived day-to-day. And so you paid them at the end of the day. And if you hold on to their money overnight just because you like to keep it around and you don't want to give it away yet, you're breaking God's law. God says, at the end of the day, you pay them what is owed. But right in the middle of that, he talks about a vow. And if you make a vow to someone in his name and you don't fulfill it, you have taken the name of the Lord God in vain. You have profaned his name. So back to Jesus' words now. Uh, Jesus first says, if you make a vow to the Lord, you need to fulfill it. And then he goes into this. He says, but I tell you, he says, I tell you, don't make any vow at all. But then he says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now what the Jews had done is developed a system where in a business deal or some form of a personal commitment to another individual, if you mentioned God's name, then you were legally bound to fulfill it, fulfill your word. But if you didn't mention God's name, literally, specifically, say God or Yahweh, then you were free from that commitment. You didn't have to fulfill it. And so what they would do is they would um, do the equivalent of what we would refer to as fine print today. You just put a whole lot of words around the contract, a whole lot of speaking, and say something like, I swear to you by the holy heaven and all the angels of heaven that I will fulfill my word. And yet, they didn't say God's name, and so they would feel free then to break their word. And so Jesus says, wait a second, heaven is where God lives. So if you swear by heaven, are you not swearing by God? And they, they would say, you know, according, you know, my, my word will be fulfilled. And, and I say, say this based upon the sacred earth, which gives us life. And Jesus said, well, wait a second. If you, if you cite the earth as your witness, then the earth is his footstool. So are you not citing God as your witness? And then third, the holy city of Jerusalem, but this is the city of the great king and so forth. And then, then well, maybe my own head. You know, if I don't fulfill my word, maybe my ears fall off and my nose rot away or whatever. I don't know what. But God says, no, you can't do that because you don't own yourself. You don't have any power or authority over your own head. You can't make one hair white or black. Of course, that's different today than it was then. But um, we get the point. Now, the big error they made was this. They had this assumption that if you invoke God's name, God jumps into the, into the contract. But if you don't invoke God's name, God stands back and he's not part of it. And what they failed to recognize was, for a genuine believer, God's always part of the contract. God's always part of the commitment. I don't have to say, I'll be there at seven o'clock and I make that commitment in the name of Jesus. I don't have to say that. 
If I just say, I'll be there at 7 o'clock, I, I promise you that. That's, you know, God's involved in that. And, and, and it's not something that I can step out of because I didn't say the name Jesus or the name of God. So they made that mistake. But the underlying problem is we can't compartmentalize our lives. We can't, I can't compartmentalize my life and say, okay, God's in this but not in that. And God, I'm okay with you being here, but not here. As soon as I say not here, then I'm saying not there too. Does that make sense? And so when Jesus comes into our lives, he comes in with access to every area. And that's not to say that there aren't moments when we need to examine an area. But the, the idea that I can choose, pick and choose what parts he's involved in. So when I, when I, give, my na- when I give my word... God's name's involved in that. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. So if I say I'm gonna do something, I need to do it. If I say I'm gonna be somewhere, I really need to be there. Now, a really extreme illustration of this, in my first church, um, 40 years ago again, I, I had a guy in the church named Charlie Humpley. He, if I ever wrote an article for Reader's Digest, you know, my most unusual character, it would be Charlie Humpley. He was a great guy. He was a World War II vet. He had gone, he had fought the whole time in the South Pacific uh, from the very beginning of the war to the very end, won the Distinguished Service Cross, probably should have gotten the Medal of Honor. But um, he was an electrician. And when I knew Charlie, he was living in South Bend, Indiana. And he had started off as an electrician in Chicago. And so he was part of one of the local electricians uh, unions there in Chicago. And that's where his retirement was. And so he had to go back there every year a certain number of days or weeks and work there in order to maintain the retirement that he had in, with that union. And so Charlie had given his word to a businessman that he would help him complete this project. And it came, uh, you know, without any of, of any fault to Charlie, came down to the point where the project was not going to be completed on time, and he was not able then to go back to Chicago and put the work in he needed to do in order to maintain his retirement. The, whatever amount of retirement he had there, I don't know. And Charlie made the choice of fulfilling his word to this businessman. And so he stayed and he fulfilled the project. And he told me, he said, that guy was gonna lose everything if I didn't do this. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna be okay one way or another. But he, he kept his word, even though it was a very painful thing for him to do. And the Proverbs, in, in, in Psalms, not Proverbs, but in Psalm 15 and verse four, talking about the godly person, the one that's gonna be close to God, it says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. And so Charlie had given his word, found out later that it was going to hurt him if he kept his word, but he nevertheless kept his word. Now, I know for me, a thousand questions go off in my mind, which I wish I had asked him. Uh, you know, couldn't he have figured something else out? Couldn't they have delayed the project? I, I know he did tell me they could not delay the project. It had to be fulfilled or this guy lost everything he had. And, and that, that is granted, very few of us are gonna be in a situation like that, but it's not just the big things that count. Charlie did that because he kept his word every day. 
He was able to do that big thing because if he told you he was going to be someplace, he would be there. And if he was going to be late, well, we didn't have cell phones then. But um, he'd have a good reason for it. But my, my point is that we want to be a people that are known as people who keep our word. We don't make commitments lightly. We take them seriously. But we keep our word once we make a commitment. Now, here's why that's so important. It is what Jesus says in verse 37. He says, all you need to say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil. Evil or the evil one, either one, either is a good translation. You see, this is foundational to godly character. It's foundational to godly character that we're truthful. And truthful in the small things, not just the big things, the small things as well. And this is because we live in a dark and sinful world. And we live in an age where nobody makes, nobody honors commitments. I mean, commitments are made and then cast aside with little thought because that's the way our culture is. And that's not all the culture. I don't mean to say that, but but by and large, you see a lot of that out there. Let's put it that way. And, and so what we want to do is be a people that do make commitments thoughtfully and then fulfill our commitment. But what Jesus is saying here with yes and no is just simple, straightforward, honest approach to life. And uh, the New Testament emphasizes this for the sake of relationship. Ephesians 4, verse 15 it says this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ, that is Christ. Christ is the head, we're part of the body, speak the truth in love. And he goes on and explains that further in verse 25 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Therefore, ridding ourselves of falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. Why? Because we're part of one another. We are part of one another. And why, I don't want to lie to myself. I don't want to lie to you or, or le- mislead you because you're part of me and we're both part of Christ and Jesus is the head. And I'm committed to honoring the head, Jesus, and so that means I'm going to honor you as well with honesty and truthfulness. And that means I'm going to have the expectation of others honoring me. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but... Um, He's not talking here about cruel honesty, okay? Like, like such, such honesty that a four-year-old shows you their painting and you say, yeah, you know, you could have done this part better and those two colors really don't match. No, the four-year-old brings the drawing or the painting to you. It is fantastic. It's beautiful. And you can say that with total, you know, total clear conscience. Guys, your wife comes home with a new hair, hairstyle. It is stunning, Okay, that's all there is to it. It is stunning. And ladies, your husband is the smartest, most capable man you have ever seen in the world. Okay, that's right. You know what you're doing? In some respects, you're calling out the gold because really you look at them, you say, Jesus is in him. He knows Jesus. I'm going to call the gold in the wife. You know, she's beautiful. She's smart. She's so capable I'm going to call out the gold in her. That's not, that's not being untruthful. So we don't want to be, we, we don't have to be truthful to the, it's not truthful, but we don't have to be blunt 
to the point of causing pain to others. In fact, Proverbs 15 says, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours out foolishness. Now, Jesus said this. He said, anything beyond this comes from evil or the evil one. And I don't think he's saying there that if I miscalculate the time or if I commit to do something and then I can't, that Satan inspired me to do that. But what he's saying is the evil world force, the, the, the prince of the power of the air is, is the one that's behind this type of thinking because he's the father of lies. And so sometimes it can be obvious evil intent. Okay, there can be obvious evil intent where there's intentional deceit for the sake of personal gain. And that personal gain doesn't have to be financial. It could be uh, reputation or image. Or if I'm really honest in this, I won't get the job. It, it could be a number of things. It could be financial gain. It could be position or power. And so it's just intentional deceit for personal gain. It could be intentional oppression of others who don't have the same knowledge I have or have the same power or standing that I have. And so it could be that, intentional oppression of others. Do you know, after, um, after the Civil War, there were a, a lot of freed slaves that bought land. There was a lot of land to be had, and a lot of them bought land. And then others came in who were more powerful and wealthy and understood the system, and they would go examine their deed and they would find some flaw in the, in the document that they, that, that with which they had purchased the land and take the land away from them. Th that was evil. That was evil. Now, along that line, I've got to say this. That passage that I referred to earlier when he talks about making vows to others, later in the same passage in Deuteronomy, he says, in a, in a legal case, don't favor the poor person just because he's poor or the rich person just because he's rich, but focus on truth. And so it's not like, I'm not trying to talk about social justice in the cultural sense of the word, but what happened there was with the, with the taking away of land from these people that owned it, um, these, these African Americans who owned it after the Civil War, that was intentional oppression, taking advantage of people that didn't have the same uh, background or opportunity that you did. Intentional harm to others out of bitterness or revenge is a third way. And that would be someone has hurt you, and so you intentionally try to gain their trust so you can betray them. And that happens a lot, I think, among teenagers and, and others, but um, there, there's evil intent there. Now, there could be a lot, a lot of this, this, rather than just the simplicity of honest yes or honest no, there can be no evil intent at all. But it all just flows out of habits formed out of a lack of trust in God. Habits formed out of a fear of rejection uh, and disapproval. Or habits formed out of a fear of failure. All of that. Th those all just habit patterns we have that are self-defensive, self-protective you know, self habit patterns we have that, um, that, you know, like I, I, I think I just used this illustration in the first service, not in this one yet. But Lori will go to bed. We'll be watching a TV program. I like Blue Bloods, so we're watching a, a rerun of Blue Bloods. 
And right in the middle of it, she'll just say, I'm tired, I'm going to bed, and get up and walk off. And then she'll, she'll turn and say, what time are you coming to bed? And I feel duty-bound to give her a reasonable answer. Like, oh, I'll be to bed by 10 o'clock. But then 10 o'clock comes around, and I'm not tired. And, and then 10.30, 10.45, or whatever. And just really honestly, just studying this passage has made me think, whoa, wait a second. I'm not being honest. If I say I'm coming to bed at 10 o'clock, that's fully within my power to do. I'm going to do it. I need to fulfill that, okay? And so we, even in things like that, it, it's the small things that build the framework of life that we have and, and the, the, the small things that produce the background for bigger decisions. And so um, this no evil intent it shows, could show up like this, over-apologizing or over-explaining. Um, you know, like, hey, I'm really sorry. You know, I'd love to come and help you move that day. I really would, but, you know, I have surgery in the morning. Then I have an IRS audit in the afternoon, and um, I could probably try to cancel that IRS audit. But, you know, like, just ridiculous, ridiculously trying to please the other person rather than just saying, you know, I can't that day. My day's full that day. I'm sorry. You know, if you want to go into it, I'll tell you what's going on, but I can't help you. Um, much, much more honest and, and simple explanation. And sometimes a real simple explanation can help with the relationship, but we don't want to explain ourselves out of anxiety. You know, if I have to say no, I don't want to explain myself out of anxiety that that person's going to be mad at me if I don't give them a really, really good reason. And so, the, the over-apologizing or over-explaining. And then, <clears throat> over-committing. <clears throat> I mean, I, I can picture this. Um, you know, my, my, my daughter's getting married that day. But you know what? I can drop, the wedding isn't until 11 o'clock in the morning. I can drop by around 7 and put in a couple hours moving stuff for you. I mean, if that's the case... Come on, come on, man, don't be crazy. It's your daughter's wedding day. You don't need to go help this guy move. <laughs> he can, he's, he's an adult or she's an adult. They can figure it out on their own. <coughs> Pardon me. So over-affirming also. And th this is where, um, you know, you're in a meeting with someone for an hour, and finally they say, well, to be perfectly honest with you. And y what do you think when you hear that? I always think, you mean you've been lying so far? You mean you haven't been honest with us to this point? And I know what they mean, but you know, to tell you the truth is another one. Or honest, that's the truth, after a statement. Or that's the absolute truth. Or someone says something, then they say, hand to God. You know, that's, you know, that's the, the, what they're saying is that's the truth. And um, we, we don't want to be people that have to add an oath to what we say in order for it to be believable. We want to be people that... Uh, that trust us because we're people of our word. Now, there are times when you need to change, okay? There's no doubt about that. So let, let, let's say you accidentally double booked. Well, you have to choose. You have to change, but be honest about it with the, other, with the person. You just be straightforward. Let them know as soon as you can and be honest about it. Um, let, let's say you commit to something and then that evening, your child brings home a letter from the school, and their school play is the same evening. Well, of course, you're going to go to your kid's play. 
You just call, you be honest about it. You tell them, you tell them, or you've overcommitted and you're exhausted. That, that happens a lot, I think, to people. You're overcommitted and you're, 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 you're two or three days away from this commitment and you're just thinking, my gosh, I can't do it. So be honest with the person and talk to them, but don't just, uh, don't, don't just blow it off. Or let's say Wilson referred to Jesus on his way to uh, heal this guy's daughter and he got distracted. There might be a very legitimate God distraction that happens, but there should be an accompanying God story with it. You know, a powerful thing. Okay, so I'm walking along and, and I'm, I'm getting in my car to come and you know, meet with you as I said I would. And this thing happens and the Holy Spirit came and I led 83 people to Jesus and somebody was here. I mean, if it's a God moment, that interrupts, then there really should be a good God story that comes along with that moment. But uh, that's, you know, that's between you and God. I don't understand that fully. Now, how do we deal with this? First of all, trust God, okay? Learn to trust God. Trust God with your relationships. Trust the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3 says. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your paths straight. Trust Him. Trust Him to work in that other person's life. Trust him that you are an honest person and other people are going to believe you and they're not going to think ill of you. And if they do, then that other person has a problem. And um, Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So that gives us trust in God. So uh, second thing is this, don't make hasty commitments. Don't be hasty. Proverbs says that uh, a wise man thinks it through first. And so if you're asked something and you don't know the answer to it, it's better to say, if I have to answer right now, then the answer has to be no. And if that changes, I'll let you know. What I used to do was I would say, well, I can't tell you right now. I'll get back to you. And then I just forget. <laughs> I, I would just forget, even with the cell, even with the cell phone and all, all this gadgets and everything. And so... It's far better to just say, you know what, if, the answer, if I have to give you an answer right now, then I've I got to say no. If that changes, I'll let you know. So that's a discipline I need to bring into my life. And, um, you know, honor primary commitments is the final thing. Primary commitments first. Commitments to your wife, your husband, your kids, honor those first. Those are foundational and, and of the utmost importance. Honor teammates at work, at school, neighborhood, your small group, all of that. You know something? Most emergencies aren't. You hear me? Most emergencies aren't. They are, what, what's happened is that person has finally gotten fed up with their situation and, and, and they, they finally come to a point where they want help, but they've needed help for five years or three months, or whatever. And, and so if they've been willing to wait that long, then they can wait a little bit longer to fit into your schedule to help them. And uh, finally, I wanna say this, that Philippians 2 says that, and what I'm trying to illustrate here is that small things can have a huge impact. Philippians 2 says that if you just stop complaining, that you will shine like a bright light on a dark night. Okay, all you got to do is just don't complain anymore. 
Don't participate in complaining, and your life is going to shine like brilliant light. And I want to add this to it, that this, this is a small thing. It's make your yes, yes, and your no, no. But if we do that, our lives will shine like a bright star on a dark night. And we will in, increase our anointing, we'll increase our impact and our blessing in the lives of other people. So, Micah's going to come up and end the service. Come on up, Micah.